1: mining the depths of the benefits and value of the crucifixion of Jesus for you and I. Next, here on Abounding Grace. And again, greetings. Welcome to Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Over the last couple of weeks, we have slowed down to a snail's pace to focus in on Luke 23 and his record of the crucifixion of Jesus. Today, we come to our final installment of this little mini-series within our journey through Luke, The Crucifixion of Jesus Part 4. Won't you join us? Here's Pastor Gary Wagner with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace.
2: Do you know what you are saying when it says, He was crucified, dead, and buried, descended into hell, and was raised again on the third day? Do you know what you are conferring when you say, Christ descended into hell? Well, let me tell you what our Westminster Larger Catechism says. It says that Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of death and under the power of death until the third day, which has otherwise been expressed in these words, he descended into hell. Now let me ask you a question, and it may be something you've never thought of before. In fact, I never really even thought of it until just a few years ago. But Jesus was God in man. And as man, he had a human body and a human soul. His human body and his human soul were never, never separated from his godhood. But he died. Now, what is death? Death is the tearing apart of a person's human body from his human soul. Where was Jesus' body from the time he died until the time he rose again? Of course, it was in the tomb. And now here's the question, where was Jesus' human soul? You say, well, pastor, when he died, he went to heaven. Well, unfortunately, it's not quite that easy. Remember, his exaltation did not start until his resurrection, and he is here still being humiliated. Is it humiliating to go to heaven? No, that's the greatest exaltation that you and I could ever get. So the question is, what does the Bible say as to where Jesus' human soul was from the time he died on the cross until God raised him from the dead? Well, the Apostles' Creed refers to Christ's burial as his descent into hell. On the cross he died, his body was placed in a tomb, His human spirit remained under the power of death, still being humiliated and tormented for our sins, experiencing the full penalty of sin and the full punishment at hell on our behalf until his resurrection, because Hebrew 4 says that he didn't rest, he did not rest from his redemptive labors until God raised him from the dead on the first day of the week. And according to Romans 6, 9, it says that while Jesus was in the grave, death was master over him. From Friday until Sunday morning, Jesus suffered the torments of hell for us. In Acts two twenty seven, Peter attributes to Christ the words of Psalm 16. He has Christ saying to God, thou will not leave my soul in hell neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. So just as God would not allow Jesus' dead physical body to be corrupted in the grave, God would not leave Jesus' soul in hell. He would raise Jesus' body and soul from death and the grave. One of the most thorough explanations of this phrase, He descended into hell, is in a book on the Apostles' Creed that was written in 1773 by an Anglican by the name of John Pearson. Listen to what he says. By the descent of Christ into hell, all those who believe in him are secured from descending into hell. He went into those regions of darkness that our souls might never come to those torments which are there. But by his descent, he freed us from our fears, and by his ascension, he assured us of our hope. He passed to those habitations where God has taken up possession, that having no power over him, we might be assured that he would never exercise any over our souls departed, as they belong to him, Christ. Through death, he destroyed him who has the power of death, that is the devil, by his actual descent into the dominions of him so destroyed. When all the sufferings of Christ were finished on the cross and his soul was separated from his body, though his body was dead, his soul did not die. And though it did not die, yet it underwent the condition of the soul as such that do die. And being dead in the likeness of a sinner, his soul went to the place where the souls of men are kept who die for their sins. And so did holy undergo the law of death. But because there was no sin in him and he had fully satisfied for the sins of others, which he took upon himself. Therefore, as God allowed not his Holy One to seek corruption, so he left not his soul in hell, and thereby gave sufficient security to all those who belong to Christ of never coming under the power of Satan or suffering in the flames prepared for the devil and his angels. And thus, for these reasons, may every Christian say, I believe that Christ descended into hell. What is Reverend Pearson saying? He is simply saying Jesus came to bear the full consequences of sin. And what are the full consequences for sin? Going to hell. And from his death until his resurrection, Jesus descended into hell so that you and I would not have to go to hell when we die. Now, some people and this is probably the majority opinion today, have interpreted the phrase in the creed, he descended into hell metaphorically. They say, well, you know, it's not a literal statement. It's, it's to say in a non-literal way that Jesus Christ bore all the suffering and all the consequences and punishment of sin in his death and burial. It is a figurative statement. Now, it is true that the Lord Jesus Christ did suffer the full punishment we deserve for our sin. But nevertheless, it is problematic to say that this one phrase in the Apostles' Creed is metaphorical and not literal. Why? Because in the paragraph, in the Creed in which it is found, every other phrase refers to an actual historical event in the life of Christ. Nothing else is metaphorical. Born of a Virgin Mary, of a Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead and buried. The third day he rose again. These are all historical facts. And right in the middle of that, we are told arbitrarily there is a figurative, a non-historical statement. He descended into hell. Now, to me, that seems to be pretty arbitrary to say that every phrase is historical except that one. He didn't really go to hell. It just means figuratively he suffered a kind of hell for us. The problem then becomes, what keeps a person from taking other phrases in the Apostles' Creed as non-historical? Now others would say the view I'm espousing seems to contradict Jesus' clear and decisive saying on the cross, it is finished. That is, salvation has been fully accomplished and secured by my death on the cross. So how can he continue to be suffering for sin if he said on the cross, it's finished? Well, that wonderful statement by Jesus does not contradict what I'm trying to explain. Because when Jesus said these words, he was still alive. He hadn't suffered the full consequences for sin yet because death is the wages of sin. So he is saying those words in certain anticipation of his death and his burial. He was anticipating the completion of his suffering and humiliation that was necessary to secure eternal salvation for all for whom he died. That is, death and burial during which his human spirit descended into hell. Others would reject this view that Jesus descended into hell between his death and resurrection by saying... It flies in the face of those words that Jesus said to the thief on the cross that believed in him. Today, you shall be with me in paradise. So how can Jesus, spirit, be in hell from his death to resurrection if he said to the thief, when you die and I die, we'll be together in paradise. Now on the surface, it does seem to contradict our view. But I want you to think carefully about these words and think carefully about the nature of Christ. And remember the little Christology study I gave you just a few minutes ago. Jesus was fully human and fully God in one person. His humanity and his deity are inseparable. In death, his human spirit was separated from his human body, although his deity remained in union with both his deceased body and his spirit. I don't fully understand that. But according to Scripture, that is true. Furthermore, although God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, was incarnate in Jesus, the presence of the Son of God is not limited... To Jesus' human body and soul. For God the Son, as the other two persons of the Trinity, are omnipresent or everywhere. Therefore, the loving presence of God the Son did fill paradise. In fact, the whole universe cannot contain Him even while His human body was in the grave and His human spirit was in hell. So then the believing thief on the cross, entering paradise immediately upon death, was in the presence of God, the Son of God, enjoying fellowship with him. And finally, others object by pointing out that in dying on the cross, Jesus said to God, into your hands I commit my spirit. That doesn't contradict our view on Christ's descent into hell either. What did I say Jesus is saying in quoting Psalm 31? He is saying to his father, whom he loved with all his heart, because I trust you and love you, father, and because I want to finish the work you gave me to do to save sinners, I submit myself to you completely. Take care of me now while I face the forces of darkness in hell. Not my will, but your will be done, even if it means I must descend into hell. Now, I could have gone on without delving into some of these deeper things. But the church today has too shallow of an understanding of who Jesus is and what His work is. And as a result, their lives are shallow also. Now, I'm not trying to make an intellectual out of any of you, but there was a time when Scottish peasant children could generally explain to you what I've just talked about today. Historians of the 17th century say that the Scottish Presbyterian peasants who lived in thatched roof houses had greater intellects than most of the European people. And it was because their fathers read their Bibles to them daily. And they were encouraged to read their Bibles for themselves. And they were taught the Westminster Confession and larger catechism and memorized the shorter catechism. Things that are beyond us are sometimes too deep for us to contemplate. It's not the way it has always been for the people of God. And I'm just trying to help all of us more to be more thoughtful Christians who love the Lord Jesus Christ more intelligently. Now, I don't have ample time for, to delve into every possible means of how we should apply what we talked about today. But we will be buried someday. We will go to a loved one's funeral. Sometime in your life, someone will ask you about cremation. And you need to have the answers. Some loved one of yours who doesn't know the Bible as well as you you do is going to leave as their dying wish to be cremated, and maybe it will even be your mother or father. And it could leave you in a moral dilemma. You've got to have answers, and you must understand that you don't have to obey, first of all, a dying wish of any person whatsoever. If the wish is wrong, you do not have to obey it. So now in the light of Jesus' burial, let's start thinking biblically. Because remember, the Bible is the final word of rule and practice for all Christians. Remember that its authority is divine and life-wide all-embracing authority. Remember, the Bible gives sufficient direction on every conceivable human issue so that we might be thoroughly equipped unto every good work. And since that is the case, we must ask the Bible, what is the proper and God-honoring way of disposing of the human body at death by cremation or burial? And beloved, I'm going here. Because the question has been asked me many, many times, and this is the perfect time for me to answer it. The Bible answers with unmistakable clarity that burial, not cremation, is the way God wants us to dispose of the bodies of our loved ones upon their death. It must be pointed out from the start that this is so, not because cremation and the scattering of human ashes would pose a problem for God on the last day when he raises our dead bodies from the grave. You know, something like uh, uh, I put the ashes of my father in shotgun shells and I go out and I shoot a duck and that duck falls into the water and the fish come along and they eat some of that shotgun ash dust of my father and Then someone comes along and catches that fish, and they take it home, and they eat it, and so on and so forth. This does not cause a problem for God. There's no limit to God's power. In other words, we're not against cremation because it would be so difficult for God. Burial, the biblical mode of disposal of dead bodies, is evidenced from the Old Testament, the New Testament, and what God did himself. In the Old Testament, burial was a common practice among the people of God. Abraham buried Sarah. Jacob buried Leah. Then there were Rachel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Solomon, Moses, who were also all buried. Now, some of you may say, well, what about Achan and Saul, who were cremated? But their two incidents are not recommendations for cremation. On the contrary... They were presented as abnormal and even desperate. It is a violent destruction of the human body. The normal way the Old Testament people of God disposed their love, their beloved dead, was by burial. All death rites originating in heathenism were forbidden them. Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2 say, that since God's people know him and possess life in his covenant they are not to be distinctively they are to be distinctively different in the way they mourn and the way they handle death Mourning practices of pagan religions were to be avoided because they were associated with pagan worship and their death rituals. And because Israel must have respect for the body as God's creation, it was not to be disfigured or misused. If the Jewish mourners were not to cut or mutilate their living bodies in expression of grief like the pagans... Surely they were not permitted to violently destroy the dead bodies of their brothers and sisters in covenant. Now, the New Testament followed the Old Testament uh, customs of burying the dead, as in the clear burial of John the Baptist, Lazarus, Ananias, and Sapphira, and others. And, of course, the burial of Jesus Christ is the best example for Christians. In fact, we need no other reason. For burial, then, the burial of Jesus. Do you want to be Christ-like in your burial? His blessed body was carefully and reverently disposed of. It was covered with spices, wrapped in a clean linen cloth. Before that, it was washed down and then laid tenderly in the tomb. The early church fathers publicly denounced cremation, according to Tertullian and Augustine. One great historian by the name of Philip Schaff, said, "...the primitive Christians always showed tender care for the dead under a vivid impression of the unbroken communion of the saints and the future resurrection of the body in glory." For Christianity redeems the body as well as the soul and consecrates it, a temple to the Holy Spirit. Hence, the Greek and Roman custom of burning the corpse was repugnant to Christian feeling and sacredness of the body. And third, we find God involved directly in the disposal of the dead body of Moses. How did God do it? We read in Deuteronomy 34, 5, and 6... So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and God buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite beth Beor, But no man knows the place of his burial to this day. So God's method of disposing his people is burial, not cremation. In conclusion, I want to quote to you from Dr. William Charles Robinson. Following the Jewish custom, the Christians washed the bodies of their dead, wrapped them in linen cloth, sometimes embalmed them. Then in the presence of ministers, relatives, and friends with prayer and the singing of psalms, committed their deceased body as the seeds of the resurrection body to the bosom of the earth. Generally, these burials were in sepulchre chambers with square-cornered recesses in the walls or burial places. The corpses were wound in wrappings without coffins, and the openings were closed with tiles of brick and marble. Julian, the apostate, traced the rapid spread and power of Christianity to three causes. Their benevolence, their honesty, and their care for their dead. The Christian custom was sustained by several texts from 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. In, appointing, in opposing fornication, the Apostle Paul wrote, Know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Glorify God, therefore, in your body. In opposing intermarriage with unbelievers, he reminds Christians, What agreement hath a temple of God with idols? For you are a temple of the living God. In warning against dividing the congregation, he says, Know ye not that you are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, and such are you. And then in the great resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians, he finds an analogy between our sowing seed and seeing them sprout into living bodies and our looking for its resurrection and its incorruption, glory, and power. Brethren, he says, weigh these texts before you exchange the Christian custom of burying or entombing the bodies that are temples of the Holy Ghost for a custom which primitive Christianity universally rejected. The graves of the saints are sanctified by Christ's rest in the tomb and the bodies of believers being still united to Christ do rest in their graves until the resurrection.
1: Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Or, again, simply call us, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're also welcome to join us for worship. Sunday services here at Reformed Heritage Church are at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. We meet at the Lone Hill Church two in the afternoon. Directions can be found at reformedheritage.org or by, again, calling 408-866-5607. We thank you for joining us, and trust we'll see you again next time we get together for another broadcast of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner.